feeling in touch with your religious side? Wanting to rid yourself of sin? It's your lucky day because God is a trans woman. Woman. Sasha Saide. And Jesus is non-binary. Binary. Binary. Jacob Gamble. Join, Join us on Queering the Air every Sunday from 3 to 4 p.m. Queer and trans arts, politics, pop culture, and everything in between. Only on TreeCR Community Radio. Come worship at the altar of your queerness desires. It lingers when we're done. You believe God is a woman. And good afternoon and welcome to Queen the Air here on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Um, or maybe you're tuning in online at 3cr.org.au. My name is Jacob and I'll be taking you through your next hour here. Um, just before we begin, wanting to acknowledge that we're broadcasting on stolen lands today, the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, paying our respects to elders past and present and acknowledging that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed and that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Um, and while we're paying respects to elders too, also wanting to acknowledge all of the queer and trans elders uh, who have come before us to cultivate um, this wonderful society that um, most of us have benefited from today. So shout out to all of the elders who might be tuning in today. Um, look, we've got a fun show coming up for you today. Later on, we'll be chatting with Dr. David Gold, who is um, the president of Carlton Pride, all about a book exploring the lives of homosexual men in post-war Australia. So that should be really fun. But first up, I'm joined live in the studio by a wonderful guest, um, Navi Karan, who is a um, bit of everything, really. Writer, DJ, theatre producer, Instagram baddie. <laughs> Navi Karan, welcome. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. Hello. How are you? So, so good. Well, a little bit hungover, to be honest, but overall doing okay. And I think mm. I turned on the wrong mic, but you're here now. Oh, hello. Okay. Oh, I can actually hear myself. <laughs> Thank you for having me. No, it's a pleasure. Um, and for those tuning in at home, Navi Karan is wearing the most gorgeous pair of earrings. So if you hear a little jingle jangle, that's it. The fit's <laughs> looking great today. But how are you on this dreary Sunday? Really good. A bit sleepy and very excited for Taurus season because my birthday is coming up. Oh. How cool. What day? It's the 7th of May, so in four Sundays. Oh my gosh. That yeah. is coming up really close. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, happy birthday for Thank you. four weeks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, better now than never. <laughs> um, now, look, you have your foot or your hand or whatever body part in so many different things and I find it always very interesting asking arts workers like you know what do you do or how do you describe what you do because I feel like in this gig economy you can never be sort of reliant on one thing but that being said how would you best describe yourself um, and what you do? I think um, it comes down to the practice and the responsibility of being a storyteller 
I practice a lot. A lot of things that I do mainly fit on stages. Mainly fit through works around oral storytelling. Um, that could be or music or dance or things that you know people can vibe with. Um, less things that can be framed in a museum, but you know that might change. Mm. <laughs> and tell us a little bit about like a story that you've recently been involved in telling. Yeah, um, I mean I debuted my album last year, Brown Church, which was also a theatre work and is a poetry collection. It is on every streaming platform. We worked on the um, essentially the premise that queerness can be practiced as a faith mm. and as a way of caring for each other, caring for land, elders and the children to come. And Brown Church takes you on a really exciting journey through spoken word, rap, um, some really transcendental music um, that we worked on for 18 months before putting mm. it out finally last year. Yeah, and we'll be playing some tracks uh, from Brown Church later on in the show. But I think one in particular that you mentioned um, was really good was called, and correct me if I got the name wrong, Empire City? Entire City. Entire City, <laughs> sorry. Entire City. Tell us a bit about that one. Yeah. Um, a few years ago, I had someone who lived in Sydney send me a rose for Valentine's Day. And I tell this story so much. But um, when I received the rose, I messaged her back and I said, um, oh, I wish I could be Sydney instead of saying, oh, I wish I could be in Sydney. So it was a typo. And she laughed at me and I was like, oh, you're laughing, but watch me turn this into a poem. And then <laughs> I essentially wrote a whole poem about how I could be a city to someone. And what I wanted to capture through the work, and it's an entire city is a piece within the album as well, so you can listen to it. Mm. What I wanted to capture was a sense of... Um, isolation that people feel and predominantly one that was quite solidified through the pandemic which we are still in and as someone who has always grown up in really big cities like I've grown up in Mumbai and Bangalore and then Brisbane and now I'm in Melbourne and so and so I quite relate to this sort of a concrete infrastructure because I feel like that's a significant part of me mm. and I wanted to put that down into a poem and so that's how entire city was born. My gosh. Yeah, it sounds like <laughs> such a journey. And it sounds like you've also been on quite the journey through all these different cities. I mean, mm. how do you find your place um, in when you, when you go to a new place? Because it seems like you've moved around quite mm. a lot. I think, and I guess that's another part of my storytelling practice as well, is food. Mm. I use food quite a lot. I love cooking for others. I love forming connection and community through food. So everywhere that I've been... I have built a practice of cooking or involving food in a lot of different ways. So every time I do a show or run a workshop or go anywhere, really, mm. I mean, there are snacks in my bag as we speak. So um, <laughs> I think that eating and sharing meals with someone is quite important. And so, and I suppose that's how I've found belonging in mm. the various places I've been in. Mm. And what's your favorite kind of food to eat? Oh my gosh, Indian. Yes. Um, I'm very loyal to my people. <laughs> I think <laughs> I think we make the best food. Uh, but also, I guess I'm quite lucky because even within the subcontinent, there's so many different kinds of food. I am personally a saltwater child. And so I grew up specifically with a lot of rice, with a lot of coconut. And mm. yeah, I, if I could just have one cuisine in my whole life, it would definitely be from my own subcontinent 
And rightfully so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And now you're also a writer among mm. the many other things um, that you do. And um, recently read one of your pieces about navigating my masculinity as a trans woman, which mm. I just thought was really well articulated and explored some really interesting themes about your upbringing. What's your relationship like to masculinity? If I think if you have to question my relationship with masculinity, I often first question my relationship with the English language. Mm. Um, essentially, gender, we know this gender is a construct and a lot of labels around gender like masculinity and femininity are also words at the end of the day. What I really am interested in are certain traits that get classified under certain words. And in this case, masculinity has certain traits that people would consider quite masculine within Western contexts and certain traits that are considered super feminine within the Western context. So things like, oh, being a tradie and, I, God, I don't know, being strong and muscly and hoarse, I guess, would be considered masculine and, you know, being gentle and nimble and graceful and mm. someone who only, I guess, lives indoors would be considered feminine, which, you know, they're all quite really debilitating categories to put ourselves in. And so my relation to masculinity was quite significantly the sort of masculinity you see within toxic Western traits of ex masculine expectations. Mm. And to me, that also was quite powerfully significant within growing up um, with my father and navigating what it means to be a man. Um, and I suppose... It, that expectation that was put on me as someone who didn't identify with that and still don't. Um, and so it's quite complex, I think. But also I've realized that it is, after all, a word in English and we can be who we want. Mm, and that's a really beautiful sentiment to live by. And something else you mentioned or explored in the piece was sort of the differences between masculinity and the traits associated with masculinity, which you've sort of touched on a bit. But I wonder if you can tell me a bit more about what you mean by that. Yeah, absolutely. I think these lessons of what is to what it is to be a man or what it is to be a woman start quite young for a lot of people. I think colonization specifically that forced people within categories and were quite powerfully erasing of anything that wasn't traditionally masculine or feminine or trans um, or a different gender um, really entrenched certain ways of being. And so I see that, you know, especially within Western contexts, being a man means certain things. And being a woman means certain things. And it puts a lot of pressure because we are naturally not, you know, we don't grow up a certain way unless we have been put into certain boxes. And so we get assigned a certain gender when we are bought, when we are when we are born. And I think that complicates lives quite dangerously. It forces us to be a certain way, and that has quite chaotic impacts on on mental health. I think um, in a country like Australia that has a really staggering rate of domestic and family violence, specifically perpetrated by men or people that identify as men or masculine, um, because men are expected to have control, men are expected to be a certain way. And when that doesn't happen, there are really very little 
forms of freedom for them to explore what their gender could look like. And I think that because of those lack of those options, a lot of women and queer folk um, are at risk and are often a lot vulnerable. Um, and I guess that's what I mean when I talk about traits. I mm. think that who you are doesn't have to fit within a certain box of masculine, feminine, or any other labels pertaining to gender. And I think, like I said, you can be the queer fairy you want to be or just be who you are and not even identify yourself as queer if you don't want to. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Really enjoying um, the conversation. I'd love to hear one of your songs. Mm. Um, Did you want to introduce one from Brown Church? Yeah, cool. I guess we should do Where Are You From? Mm -hmm. Um, Where Are You From is one of the first tracks I ever put out. It was one of my first singles, I believe. Um, It is a track that really questions and investigates the question, where are you from, that is often asked to people of color, dark-skinned folk, Mm. or people that just look like immigrants, I guess. And it is a really fun track. It has a very few different sections that does some very cool things. And I'm very excited for you to listen to it. All right, let's go. This is Where Are You From by Navi Karan. Dream. Liberty brown skin come shine on me Liberty brown skin in the mainstream This golden speech is ancestral preach I see your schemes but I'm ahead of you On stolen land making breakthroughs More than your spice for revenue Don't see my view, come kiss these shoes Check this parade of colored babes Up shop bougie and here to stay I want your rights and your privilege I want your God and your ignorance But you'll never have this holy vision Third world race with queer baptism Fashion on fleek in my blessed kingdom This is daily life, not an exhibition You make it okay to constantly check my space Your lack of place is displacing me with hate I go from a car to a car to a lease that will never have my name Hello Mr. Tone Police, you are calling me in great Where are you from? Where are you from? I'm losing sleep, recheck your gossip I'm joyfully building all these mansions Disregarding your distractions Believe me, I was born this flawless Mean it when you call me goddess Bring me forth for your shopping pose Use my kindness for your fame God, no. Call me fierce for your chest skin Better pay my checkmate Better give me my rupees, please What more than you give your Say you don't want it back Take me to your land And say it doesn't make you mad Take me to your land Take me to your land Don't you ever question Your connection to the sea Don't you ever question Your connection to the trees Don't you ever question Your God when you're down on your knees Take me to your land Take me to your land Understandably, understandably 
Sorry, having some mic troubles, but welcome back. You're on Queen the Air live with myself, Jacob, and we're joined in the studio by the very creative and talented Navi Karan. Hey, hey. And we just, still here. Still here. <laughs> still kicking. Um, and we just heard that song, Entire, not Entire City, sorry, Where Are You From? Yeah, what a banger. Thank you. I'm glad. You listen. That went really quickly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was just saying, I love that style um, where it's kind of like the poetry and the rap, and you're just like hitting those points mm. with a little beat in the background. Now, I know you're passionate about music and organized, in fact, um, a little community event uh, a few weeks ago called Moth Process, mm. which is where we met. Tell us a bit about um, Moth Process. So I co-produced Moth Process with my partner Levi. We are both DJs. We initiated Moth Process in Mianjin last year, which is Brisbane, when we lived there. And it really started as a curiosity for music and wanting to create alternative spaces for people to gather that weren't just clubs. Mm. We, we, of course, love club culture, but we also wanted to give people more options to leave their homes, especially for folk who are queer, um, and not <coughs> a nonsense, um, because especially clubs, this club scene can be quite high energy and not mm. quite accessible for many intersections of people. And then when we moved to Nam, we brought Moth Process along with us, and we realized that the uh, intersections of people coming were often the people we wanted to work with. So we mm. had a lot of women, we had a lot of queer folk, and we had a lot of trans folk, and people started dancing quite a lot. And so we were like, oh, okay. Because we were exp- initially exploring a lot of quaint themes like jazz. I know jazz is not super quaint, but we also wanted to do one uh, one that was themed around horror music themes and whatnot. Mm. But then the movie sort of did it and people wanted to come and dance and sort of it turned into a semi-club scene um, situation. And so we have partnered with a new venue down at Richmond, and we'll be doing mock process semi-regularly throughout the year. Um, the intention also is to feature local trans and non-binary and queer talent um, that is also indigenous, black, and POC. We specifically want to shift the way in which queer people can access work Mm. Um, as musicians, as DJs, as performers, and Moth Process is a really good meeting point of all of those realms. 
And so the next one's on the 2nd of June. We have, some re- we have a really cool lineup. We just confirmed it, but I can't announce it yet. Oh. But it's definitely on the 2nd of June in Richmond. No giveaways, yeah. No. <laughs> well, come along, listeners. Um, the last one was absolutely a great time, um, really strong community energy. And I love how it, it kind of started out as like, oh, we're just going to like have a quaint, chill time. But then the queers were like, no, we're going to dance. <laughs> yeah, and everyone will have a new DJ debuting their first set. And so oh. um, if you're a person of color and you want to learn to DJ and you're queer and trans, get in touch because we want to book you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you heard it here. And the name Moth Process as well, because I noticed at the Mm -hmm. event there was like a graphic um, on the board of like a moth coming out of um, its cocoon, I think is the word. (laughs) Yeah, tell me a little bit about that name. Yeah, so we initially were obsessed with this term called death process, and I don't really remember why. We also were... Sim- like parallelly obsessed with moths because my partner and I got moths tattooed on our bellies mm. um, when we were together for about six months. And moths are also symbolic of messages and information and communication from the spirit realm. Mm-hmm. And the word moth in Hindi, which is one of the languages I speak, means death. And so we're like, oh, what about the word death, moth process instead of death process? And also one that creates this sense of evolution and really focuses on the journey of the sound and the music, not only um, for the audience, but also for the people playing. Because I'm really fascinated by DJing as a storytelling experience Mm. and DJing as a way of creating a space and making place for people um, and as a source of magic that we can share. And all of that sounded really good. as a process led by moths. And so moth process stuck as a name and it's what we do. And so every moth process is the birth of a new moth mm. um, and the meeting of community and the celebration of us. I love it. I'm such a slut for symbolism. So this, yeah, this is mm. ticking all the boxes for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and tell me a little bit about, because I know you also do a lot of poetry. And mm. in fact, you wrote um, a piece on it about how poetry saved your life. One line in particular really stood out to me where you wrote, I suppose I am poetry more than I am queer. Let's unpack. Let's unpack. Okay, Jacob. (laughs) I really am inspired and have learned a lot from black and queer feminism and specifically Audre Lorde, where she talks about poetry not being a luxury and as a way of life. To me, poetry is the deep investigation of who we are and the really sort of intentional exploration of what it means for us to live good lives, lives where we don't have to struggle, we have access, lives where we have a sense of well-being and a sense of community. And when we look at poetry and using poetry as a tool, what it does is it really gives us a sense of language. It gives us a way of creating words and understanding and concepts of what we and how we live. And so to me, poetry became this tool of 
that really shed a light on parts of me that I did not understand and mm. did not used to understand. And it really provoked this sense of curiosity, which to me also essentially is what queerness to. Queerness to me is like a branch unfolding or a blot, um, blotting on a sheet or a drop of a rock spreading across the ocean. And it really is what inspires me to think and be curious about everything, really. And, yeah, and I think, I guess, you know, I feel quite privileged because I can think in a few different languages. Mm. And so I'm not necessarily um, controlled by the limitations of English. Um, and also really inspired by a lot of Urdu poetry, which there's nothing like Urdu poetry. Um, the kind of shit they say, <laughs> uh, the way they say it is quite inspiring. And so I think poetry makes me realize that we deserve better and we can explore what that better means um, with each other and for each other. Mm. And what a poetic way of saying mm. all of that. Thank you. And you speak three languages, did you say? I speak five languages. Five languages. What languages do you speak? Um, they're all Indian, um, except for English. Um, so Konkani, which is my mother tongue. Um, I speak Marathi and Hindi. I speak Kannada. And then English, that's five. And then I understand a bunch of other languages. Mm. Um, when you grow up in India, that's not unusual, though. Of course. Because um, especially if you're a curious, bratty, rebel of a child like I was, <laughs> you just kind of go everywhere and put your nose into other people's business. And so you just kind of learn everything and you know what people are saying because... You're a very smart child, you know? <laughs> yes, yes. And do you find that you integrate, like, some of the different languages you know into your music and, and your poetry? Yes, I do enjoy doing it. I think I do it with intention. Um, so I put some of Hindi within where are you from, so there's some lines that are in a different language. Mm. I I want to be very careful and very precious about it because my mother tongue in specific, Konkani, um, was almost erased due to specifically Portuguese and British colonization. And so I want to make sure that the language and the legacy from which we come is safe and not just used um, as a way of exploiting it because mm. I think it's such a privilege to be able to practice culture on land that is not yours. And I also want to be careful of what I put out there um, as a way of not taking space in a place that is not my mine. Yeah. Mm. Mm. And what a privilege it has been having you in the studio with us today, Navi Karan. Thank you so, so much. I'm uh, blowing air kisses to everyone right now. Thank <laughs> you very much for having me, Jacob. No, it's, it's a pleasure. And, and we're spreading the love through the airwaves. Um, let's take it out. Uh, I'll let you introduce another one of your songs for oh us. Oh my gosh, yes. So is it Show You How It's Done? Yes. Yeah, cool. Awesome. Thank you for wanting to play that. I love this track. It's one of the last tracks on the album. Um, we don't play it much, and I don't perform it much either, um, for no particular reason. But it's I really wanted to write a very sassy, fun track. Um, and I initially, we called it Untucked, but then we realized RuPaul had kind of taken over that oh, term very yes. powerfully. And I don't watch RuPaul, so I was completely unaware of it. And everyone was like, no, nope, don't name your song Untucked <laughs> because people will associate it with Drag Race. But I kind of like the idea of trans femmes and trans women taking space. And that's how I show you how it's done. 
Tukbat. Yes, let's go. Uh, you're on 3CR, cream the air. Honey, honey, give me my money, money. Have I ever told you I want to be an entire city to you? Bring you dreams and turquoise aspirations freshly conspired on concrete and billboards. 
I want to be the magical magnolia of urban legends whispered in share houses and graveyards. I want to be the tangerine tasting thrill of window shopping and shoplifting and ridiculing the market value of inner city properties. I want to be the fascination of watching strangers taking long walks with their arms full of groceries because they have spent all of their bus money on ice cream or vegan cheese and you know you've been there. I want to be the comfort chestnut of early morning cafes on cozy chairs and coffee. I want to be the lilac hope of picnics and holding hands on park benches and paperback poetry. I want to be the bedazzled bronze of the afternoon glow hitting your cheekbones just so that I can capture the nonchalant amber of your smile. I want to be the entire toil of the working class bustling in underground trains of hustlers realizing the reality of their bodies tearing apart from a disease named capitalism. I want to be the burnt blue consistency of the stars against the haze of light pollution, the danger dandelion of late night drunken disasters. I want to be the flamingo pink and the rowdy raspberry of parties so gay that if they ever painted a picture of us, all you would remember was the liberation. I want to be an entire cityscape of silver and moonshine. of quiet lavender silences by the river where i kiss your face just to be reminded that i want to be an entire home to you because home right now is a forever distance between reality and desire that if we were to be privileged to happiness it would only mean remaining in the here and now and never of what it could be freedom freedom Most days I realize how mistakenly safe I feel in my own chaos that I so consistently repeat my own cycles of turmeric tongue trauma that I am now too fast for autonomy like the way I ride motorbikes on highways in Bangalore forgetting to remember that I could belong somewhere or the way in which i anguish in the lucid ochre mysteries of my desires and avoidances that i find myself painted in what the corporate world calls self-care and the catholic church calls sin and i don't know about you but i want to continue being this vision to you the warmest purple i have ever known you the inexplicable red of the poems i have never written you a daydream unfolding you are the gold existing in the multiplicities of venn diagrams that neither could i ever grasp nor could i ever be worthy of and so for you i will be an entire map so that if you are ever lost the streets tattooed after my name will bring you home so come here i am waiting by the door I will be the porch light peach of your welcome the soft recognition pearl of straw mats the tan fragrance of mustard frying on the pan kiss 
Kishore Kumar on the radio and Atrak Wali Chai come home. I will be the soft babble of children and their brown curiosities. The euphoria of waking up next to us in bed two hours past midnight just to witness the marigold flame of the moon and my heart next to you come home. I want to be an entire concert to you. The collective harmonies of a packed out stadium chanting the room into a spell holier than God. Come home. I will be the greenest of the blues you'll ever sway your hips to. The yellowest of the laughters you will ever find. I will be the magenta of your heart next to mine so that on every valentine you are the knock on my door delivering roses for no reason but the gesture. I am so scared of writing love poems because there is always more trauma to address and not enough time for my heart. I am so scared of writing love poems so here I am building this entire city for you from the start and I will never know what to call this poem because I will never stop finding ways to adore you and so for now I will call this by the word of your name. It's a little insane. Have I ever told you if I ever found us in the comfort chestnut of early morning cafes on cozy chairs and coffee, I will readily mix your sapphire desire with my emerald joy to ground us in your heaven. And have you ever wondered the colors we could manifest if this was our foundation? Joran Queering the Air on 3CR. That one was called Entire City by Navi Karan, who was just joined, uh, who just joined us in the studio chatting through all of the amazing, um, creative things they've been up to. Moth Process is happening on June 2nd, which if you missed it, it's a community dance event. Um, uh, broad debuting is the word I'm looking for. Debuting new DJs, um, specifically around queer and trans people of color. So, yeah, if you liked um, what you heard, you can follow Navi Karan on Instagram. Um, we'll get the handle up for you a little later on. Um, but now I want to jump in to our next guest, who is Dr. David Gold, who I spoke with a little earlier about his new book. It's called Survivors and Thrivers, and it's all about the lives of homosexual men in post-war Australia. So in around the, the late 40s, and 50s, and I think a bit into the 60s too. So this one's uh, a great chat. Let's take a look. So you've written a book all about the post-war homosexual lives of people living in Australia. Do you want to tell us about how that journey began for you? Yes, it's a book about the lives of homosexual men rather than women, uh, because I sort of thought the the stories of women should be told by women. So that's why I didn't do that. But uh, I suppose the story probably started with myself when I was a little boy, when I look back on it, because, of course, things were very different then for... I'm 65 now, and things were very different for homosexuals at that time. But even prior to my life uh, in post-war Australia, they were even different to what my life was. 
And so I guess the story started with me as an adult coming to understand the sorts of prejudices and uh, difficulties that people had faced during those times. And so I suppose that story was always in me. But what actually started me to think about doing a, a PhD and then my book was a very close friend who um, unfortunately passed away about four years ago. But he used to tell me stories about his life uh, post-World War II. And those stories were often very funny and full of fun. And I thought, that doesn't seem to gel with what I'd been told about the 1940s and 50s and Mm. homosexual lives at the time. And so I wanted to look further into those stories and find out what they were. Mm. And so can you give us a sense of what kind of the social attitudes were and the the legal rights that were given, um, particularly to homosexual men, because I know it was a little bit different between um, lesbians and, and gay men um, during that time period. Yes, well, I, I guess the answer to the question what legal rights were given, the answer is none, absolutely none. Um, at the time, so particularly in the 1950s, it was when Robert Menzies was our Prime Minister and, of course, he was conservative. And it, uh, with the war having just uh, finished in 1945, the country was looking to rebuild. And Robert Menzies, I guess, talked about uh, domesticity and people creating new lives and building a family and security. And it wasn't just security for their family, it was security for the nation. Mm. So, of course, heterosexuality and the whole marriage thing was central to the nation and it was central to security too. And so, of course, homosexuals did not fit into that category at all. And in that sense, they were not only seen as being other or different, they were also seen as being a threat to the nation because they didn't participate in building the nation. Mm, I mean, that must have been a pretty alienating experience for any homosexual person back then. What was sort of some of the constant themes you heard from the men that you spoke to? Well, I think one of the first would be fear, the sense of fear, because, of course, in those days, if you were found out to be homosexual, you could be jailed, you could lose your job. You certainly would lose your job if you had Mm. been found out. Uh, You could lose your family. You might have to move interstate. Many men did. Uh, There was a sense of shame. Uh, not only shame for yourself, but you brought shame on your family. So it emanated out and it was a a, a persistent fear that uh, men faced all of the time. The other theme, I suppose, that comes out is that that sense of being different and not fitting in. And we've all felt that even even today. Um, sometimes we feel that. But of course, it was probably much more magnified uh, during those days. Because as I was mentioning before about the whole family and marriage, etc. being central to what Australians saw themselves as, if homosexuals didn't fit into that, then they were different and they were other. Mm. And certainly men felt that, and I'm sure women did too, from a very early age. Mm. But you also mentioned before there was some elements of joy 
there too in finding those safe spaces underground. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. And I guess that's why I've called my book Survivors and Thrivers. Mm. Uh, The survivors were the people who obviously are are still uh, alive, although some have died since I interviewed them. And uh, the thrivers were the ones who were actually able to accept their homosexuality at that time. And that's such a huge achievement, I think. Uh, I think it was a huge achievement for the people to survive, Mm. uh, let alone thrive. Yeah, definitely. Um, So there there was a small minority of my group uh, who were able to take the rules or understand the rules that were set around them about being heterosexual, if you like, and they could work underground, if you like, underneath that. So once they actually accepted who they were, they were then able, most of them, to make contact with other homosexuals and and then have a great deal of fun because they could have wonderful parties, they could have lots of sex, and nobody knew because, of course, heterosexual Australia did not talk about homosexuality. Mm. Yeah. So there was a, I suppose there was a, a, a real contrast between the lives of men who were surviving with that fear I was talking about versus men who were thriving because they had been able to accept their homosexuality, but they were a, a minority, certainly. Mm, of course. And how many men did you speak to for this one? I interviewed 27 men. 27. Yeah. And, yeah. and can you... Maybe give us um, a few previews of what were some of the stories that really stuck in your mind. Yes, yeah. Look, there's some stories that made me uh, feel quite sad. There were stories that were full of despair. And then there were stories that were just joyful. So there was a a real gamut of stories. I think one that uh, stands out in mind was a man who, when he was 17 was in a car with another, um, I think he was 18-year-old, in Richmond, actually, Mm -hmm. and they were uh, undressed in the back seat of a car, as were, by the way, lots of heterosexuals in other cars around them. But the police caught them, and they both had to go to court. Uh, This is 17- and 18-year-olds, and they had to get a psychiatrist to... uh, to, to sort of talk about how their mental stability was, etc. And in the end, the judge, in his remarks, and I've read the court documents, said that he had a mind to jail them for three months. But uh, through his lawyer, he was able to allow them to not have the uh, jail sentence, at, but they had to undergo a psych- psychological tests, etc., in order to not go to jail. Mm. Uh, and they had to live, in inverted commas, a heterosexual life. My gosh. Yeah. That is just, pretty scary. It's abysmal the way that, yeah, they were treated yes, back then. Yes. Um, so that's obviously something that I'm sure a lot of um, the men in your story would have experienced, that yes. sense of institutional yes. oppression yes. and um, all of that. But I also am curious to hear about some of the, the fun stories too. Yes. Well, as I said before, some of the men did have a lot of fun. And uh, I recall one man talking about the uh, hotel. It was on the corner of Flinders Street and uh, Spencer Street in mm. the city. 
And it was a hotel where he said that uh, homosexuals used to gather to have lunch, etc. And, of course, heterosexuals didn't know that there were lots of homosexuals gathered there having lunch together because in those days, you have to remember, women didn't go out a lot, certainly not by themselves. And Mm. so a bunch of men having lunch together was not unusual, even though we know now that some of those men (laughs) were homosexuals. And he told me a story that uh, the American uh, Navy, they used to um, sometimes dock at Melbourne and the sailors knew to go to that particular pub if they wanted to try to pick up. And so the man told me that they would have lunch. There would be a, a some sort of floor show. Um, he, he told the story of one man who used to get up and take take out his false teeth and play them as castanets. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that was the floor show. And then afterwards he said, men would basically pick up and go home together. And when I asked him, well, how did you do that, given that nobody actually spoke about homosexuality? It wasn't out in the open, that's for sure. And mm. he said, using a more modern term, he he said it was through gaydar, which of course didn't exist at the time because gay came in in the 1970s. But, mm. but nevertheless, that's what it was. They used body language and um, and he said they had a Oh, in his words, wonderful time. <laughs> Read what you want into that. <laughs> this warms my heart. <laughs> little um, pick-me-up at the hotel. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, wow. So I guess how do you think that era is perceived by younger generations who weren't around during that time period? Well, I guess that's part of the reason I wanted to write the book because Mm. I might be wrong, but I suspect the younger generation doesn't know a thing about that particular era. And uh, sometimes I hear young people talk about, for example, the early 90s, uh, uh, how difficult it was for them coming out. And we all know it is difficult. It's difficult at at any period in history for young people today. It's difficult to come out um, in certain circumstances. But certainly in the 1940s and 50s, you you couldn't come out, not like we talk about that today. Because as I said before, coming out would have meant being labelled as a criminal and being perhaps jailed or, or... or, as I said, shamed or losing your job or whatever. So Mm. you couldn't come out in the same sense as today. So I suspect that many young people... Uh, don't really understand the the history that has come before. And I think it's really important for all of us to be thankful to these men and the women who came before us because they are the ones who really started in a very small way the sorts of activity, I suppose, that we're allowed to do today. And, of course, you know, we know yesterday there was the Pride March against the Sydney... uh, 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 Sorry, uh, across the Sydney um, Harbour Bridge. Mm. Now, who would have thought that you could have done that 50, 70 years ago? You just could not have imagined that sort of thing. So I, th- I really think that it's important for young people to understand that, that we have come from that sort of illegality, being jailed, shame, losing your job or whatever, we have come from that to the point that we were at yesterday crossing the Sydney Harbour Bridge. And what a huge gap 
that has been, hasn't it? And, and what a huge change in, in uh, community attitudes and the way mm. that we all feel about ourselves. Yeah, it's, mm. it's quite, I, th- I find that quite heartwarming, really. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and you can read all about it in Dr. David Gold's <laughs> Survivors and Thrivers. When and where can we grab a copy of your book? I'm hoping the book will be out in the last week of May. It, uh, uh, the, my publisher is called, a, a small publisher called Queer Oz, as in OZ mm-hmm. Folk. And it will be available through uh, the, a website and it will be available in bookshops. So I'll certainly let people know when it is available. <laughs> Wonderful. And we'll attach some links uh, in our thanks. show notes. That'd be great. Head to our website. But David, thanks so much for coming in and, and sharing all those wonderful stories. It's been a pleasure. And that was Dr. David Gold there speaking about his new book. It's called Survivors and Thrivers, uh, The Lives of uh, sorry, Survivors and Thrivers, Male Homosexual Lives in Post-War Australia. Now, that one's coming out in late May. You can pick it up from Hares and Hyenas and International Bookshop. Uh, and if you want to learn a bit more, David says, feel free to contact him. So his email address is David, that's D-A-V-I-D, gold, G-O-U-L-D, uh, 3121 at gmail.com. Um, So thanks so much to David for that really special and enlightening chat. Um, And thanks so much to Navi Karan as well for coming in today. That brings us to the end of our show on Queering the Air. Queering the Air. I just want to give a brief plug as well to some of the amazing work that's been happening with Bridge Meals, who have been on the show a couple of times before uh, Bridge Meals. And in fact, my our co-host, Sasha Sidek, have been organizing a series of queer iftars throughout Ramadan, um, which seem to be really fun and popular events. There's actually one on tonight if you want to come along. It's starting at five o'clock. Uh, in the city, in the CBD. Uh, for more information, if you want to come along, you can email bridgemealsmelbourne at gmail.com or text um, 0432-293-496. That's 0432-293-496. Come along and have a big iftar. Um, it's coming up to the end of Ramadan. So yeah, it's going to be great. Now we're going to close the show now with a tune. This one's from Odette. It's called Watch Me Read You. Uh, and it's sort of continuing on from the poetry energy we're carrying before because i think we need a little more poetry on this show so thanks so much for joining us uh my name's jacob and i'll be back with you probably in a month but stay tuned next week sasha will be in the studio and up next on 3cr is salam radio show with mirna so we'll see you then bye Watch me read you The turning pages of an epic Dissected hallucinogenic Black coffee addict Life ended lies cold On that metal tray wasting away I watch him sneer at me From beyond the grave I hear him call for me Watch me read you I get scared when it falls dark The creeping shadows up my arm The sneaking scarecrows work their charm It's circumstantial The way I blink when you get mad Feel disarmed when you get sad But turn to run when we fall back On old behaviours When the flavour turns from sweet to sour That 
crazy hour that I seek the heavy hearts and tired of treats with words of hatred. Watch it seep through skin like sap through bark. I cower in the dark to your return. When will I learn? We never wanted to be more than just a silhouette. Breathing the smoke from others' mouths and lying in the dirt. So make a promise, but then later we can just forget. It's hard to let your breath out when you start holding it. She'll go, oh, cut her through the window. Oh, it's her, oh, maybe it's a shadow. You never wanted to be more than just a silhouette. But when you grab the light, reflects and I see you again. The beautiful colors of the people's faces and the way they sat on top of those necks. Watch me read you, like words ripped. Right off the page, another ghost, another day of melancholy UV rays and heavy eyelids. You just decided not to care, compressed your fears and cut your hair, lifted your shirt to find there's nothing there. Now read me, red wine, copper stain with curly hair and crazy eyes, impulsive mouth. She loves the rain, but not the dark. You feel insane. The overpasses wet with blood. She turns to you to say, "Hey, we can't exist." And in that moment. It's just bliss. It's like you've missed a thousand years, and as you kiss, it's like you drift between here and there, between real and fake. As I hold my breath, I can't see your face. Watch me read me, read you, read them, read us. Everyone's a burning book on trust and lust and love and what we are and what we're made of. We never wanted to be more than just a silhouette, breathing the smoke from others' minds and lying in the dirt. So make a promise, but then later we can just forget. It's hard to let your breath out when you start holding it. She'll go, cut her through the window. It's her, maybe it's a shadow. You never wanted to be more than just a silhouette, but when you grab the light, reflects and I see you again. So don't you see me? Oh, surround me. It's getting harder, babe, to focus on just one thing. It's enigmatic, truly astounding. The way we stand together, but we are still drifting. You are so absurd.